You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast interview with Aspie Brown, who is the author of Just Enough, Lessons in Living Green from Traditional Japan. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Japanese society once faced the prospect of collapse due to environmental degradation, and the fact that it did not is what makes it such an instructive example. Japan entered the Edo period in 1603, facing extreme difficulties in obtaining building timber, suffering erosion and watershed damage due to having clear cut so many of its mountains for lumber, and virtually unable to expand agricultural production to the degree necessary to feed a growing population. The needs of the urban population, particularly those of the capital city of Edo, but also those of Osaka, Nagoya, and numerous other growing cities, conflicted with those of the rural areas, and the life of farmers was made all the more difficult by their legal obligation to surrender one-third or more of their harvest to support the warrior classes. In terms of environment and natural resources, Japan was both challenged and blessed. The archipelago is extremely mountainous, and arable land is limited to a handful of broad coastal plains and many narrow mountain valleys, amounting to only about one-fourth of the nation's land area. At the start of the Edo period, nearly all of the potentially arable land had already been open to cultivation and was feeding just barely a population of about 12 million. Agricultural land in many areas was showing signs of exhaustion and degradation and output was declining, but the country benefits from a temperate climate and warm ocean currents, and it is blessed with abundant rainfall and a long growing season. Fresh water from snowmelt is generous and fast flowing, and the extensive watersheds drain into innumerable fertile valleys and wetlands. The virgin forest that originally covered the mountains of the archipelago was extensive and diverse in both broadleaf and coniferous species, and it provided an extremely rich habitat in which all manner of flora and fauna flourished. Nature itself had endowed Japan well for human habitation, but by the early 1600s, the land was suffering from over-exploitation by the large population. All the more remarkable, then, that 200 years later, the same land was supporting 30 million people, two and a half times the population, with little sign of environmental degradation. Deforestation had been halted and reversed. Farmland improved and made more productive, and conservation implemented in all sectors of society, both urban and rural. Overall, living standards had increased, and the people were better fed, housed, and clothed, and they were healthier. By any objective standard, it was a remarkable feat, arguably unequaled anywhere else before or since. This success can be credited partly to technological advances and partly to government direction. Agricultural breeding played a part, as did improved hydrology. Design was crucial, as was the timely collection and distribution of information. But more than anything else, this success was due to a pervasive mentality that propelled all of the other mechanisms of improvement. This mentality drew on an understanding of the functioning and inherent limits of natural systems. It encouraged humility, considered waste taboo, suggested cooperative solutions, and found meaning and satisfaction in a beautiful life in which the individual took just enough from the world and not more. The stories in this book describe many more of the more remarkable technical aspects of life during this period, as well as relevant social, political, and economic factors, but their real purpose is to convey this mentality of just enough as it guided the daily life of millions throughout the society. It fills me with hope in a time where we don't really see, as as you identify, 
actual examples of what is sustainable living or what is now become to call the circular economy. So what is your vision for cities of the future? What can we learn from Edo Japan and adapt for a rapid transition? It's a great question. And, you know, I wouldn't propose that we try to return to the same kind of technical solutions, technological solutions. We have so many more tools uh, at our disposal. But I think uh, understanding how cities function, the interactions, their impacts on the wider environment, the, the, the needs of community itself, what does it take to have a, a, a city, a town, a neighborhood that evolves in a way that people feel a sense of belonging and and that they want to take care of it. One of the remarkable things about the city of Edo during this period, again, from about 1600 to the middle of the 19th century, when Japan opened to the West and began to modernize, was the very large population. The city of Edo, which was renamed Tokyo, had about 1.3 million people. That was a very, very large city. It was actually denser than most of our cities today in most parts of the globe. And, and yet the lifestyle seemed to be enjoyable. There was not a lot of space to go around. People were fairly cramped. It was a caste-oriented society with a great difference in resources of what the samurai castes and wealthy people had as opposed to uh, commoners. But basically life was pretty good and they recycled everything. Everything was reused, upcycled, waste, as I mentioned earlier, was considered taboo. A person who was wasting was considered an ugly person. So um, there's a lot we could talk about the design, the layout, scale. Buildings were basically two stories, rarely taller than two stories. Very good use of, of environmental features, microclimates, uh, you know, use of wind for cooling, passive solar for heating, good use of planting, gardens, etc. But I think the main thing is it needs to be a place where people feel like they belong and want to take responsibility. And that seems to be quite embedded as you go back into the religion and belief system in Japan from Shinto, or there is that word or concept of the beauty of imperfections, uh, kintsugi. So I feel like it's really embedded. You are yourself a teacher. What do you enjoy about that process? Yes, I uh, have been teaching in Japan for, you know, more than 20 years. First in architecture department at a university in Kanazawa and now at an art university outside of Tokyo called Musashino Art University. I'm in the sculpture department and I, I didn't intend to be a teacher. I didn't study education or anything, but I found that I really like it. It suits me. And particularly in creative fields like design or the arts, a, a young student is bringing something that's important to them from their heart. And, and when we look at it and we try to evaluate it, it, it is connected with themselves. And it, it's a bit tricky sometimes, you know, people can be hurt, you know, if, if, if what they're showing doesn't seem to be you know, something's missing or something's not right. But I find it to be a very interesting kind of emotional labor, meeting of hearts. And, and of course, if you have a lot of students, you, you know, it can be exhausting to go from one to the other. But the main thing that I try to help students understand is that we have lots of options. We have lots of alternatives. There are lots of paths through life. Uh, I could never have predicted where my life would take me. When I came to Japan, I didn't expect to be here for the rest of my life, but I have been. And I looked back and said, well, that was, a, that was a, a, a fork in the road. After the Fukushima disaster, I didn't think I would be continuing to work on, on those issues for 10 years. That was a fork in the road. We can't anticipate 
what opportunities will be presented, but we should take a chance if it's something that resonates with you to do it. It's difficult. People need jobs. They need money. They want careers. And that's always going to be there. But I, I feel like it's important for people of older generations to help younger people understand that they have, they have time. They can make mistakes. They can change their direction. They can decide to do something else. And hopefully they will come into contact with people who share their goals and aims and, and can, can find themselves working together. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving uh, for the next generation, education, you know, what were some teachers or life lessons that were important to you? You mentioned that I'm from New Orleans. And I uh, am very interested in the fact that cities and the places we grow up and live teach us. They, they shape us as much as we shape them. And New Orleans was a wonderful place to grow up in uh, because you wouldn't have said it was sustainable, but the vernacular traditional architecture was naturally cooler in summers because of the way it was built with high ceilings, et cetera, with deep eaves, you know, from the roof, with verandas shaded, with lots of breezes and lots of gardens. Plus it, it, it was full of older buildings. Again, if you're you're in Europe, you're in in, in uh, Paris. Uh, of course, you'll see lots of buildings that are hundreds of years old. But in the United States, that is not that common. So New Orleans was one of the older cities, and and things become gentle over time. Buildings learn from us. We we sh we we teach them. We shape them. We reconfigure them. So, the biggest teacher for me was New Orleans itself, having grown up there. Another great teacher let's say in university was a man named Vincent Scully, who was an architecture historian. And he basically beginning in the 1940s called attention to what we now call vernacular architecture, to the average houses built for the average worker or middle-class family, not the famous showpiece architecture, which everyone was looking at before. He said, no, no, this is who we are. This, this is our identity. And, and we need to look at this and preserve this. So that was a remarkable thing. He confirmed my, my belief that vernacular, normal neighborhoods, normal houses were something really beautiful and important that we should cherish. Another great teacher for me, though, was the Temple Carpenter, who I, I mentioned earlier that I had spent three years researching with. And when I arrived in Japan in 1980s, I thought that I wanted to be an apprentice and, and learn that carpentry and become a craftsman. But I was already in my late 20s. To be an apprentice for someone like that means seven or eight years of total obedience and no sense at all no uh, that you're going to do your own creative work. You're just simply doing the master's work. And I realized that. And instead, I asked him to let me document his project. And it was a wonderful, uh, life-changing experience. And one of the good things about it was if I had been his actual apprentice, I wouldn't have been able to ask him anything. In fact, I couldn't have even talked to him unless he spoke to me first. But he would make time for me to ask him. And Master Nishoka, why do you do things this way? Why do you leave a gap, you know, when the when it's finished? Why is that gap left there? And he would say, oh, because the wood will change and will settle because of gravity and that gap will close over the next 50 years or everything I would ask him. Eventually, he brought it back to issues of the environment. 
trees as living beings that we should love and cherish and respect, that we, are, we, we apologize to the tree when we cut it because we are ending that phase of its life, but we promise to use it in a way that will continue that life for another thousand years as part of a temple, for instance. And he was constantly pointing out, oh yeah, this, this tree's, uh, tree's at the bottom of the, the hill, it's wetter there, so you know, that wood is not good for much, but the trees at the top, you know, they are not fighting for light, so they get stouter, and the trees in the middle, they're competing for light, so they get taller, and their branches are higher up, so they have fewer knots, and everything was about you know, where the wind came from, where the water came from, every question return to that. And that's something that I, I realized as I got to know other craftspeople in Japan, whether it's lacquer or other kinds of you know, basket, basketry or, or even you know, textiles or whatever, they all had this fundamentally sound environmental understanding that had been handed down for centuries. So to me, Master Nishioka was the very important teacher for me. And we didn't talk about Edo much at all, but what I learned from him influences my research and my thinking since then. Yes, it all comes back to the, the beauty and wonder of the natural world. And we wouldn't be so wasteful if we really respected the, life, the lives of the trees, the lives that every living being gives to us in order for us to use them. So hopefully we can reuse them. Um, what are some of your reflections about the beauty and wonder of the natural world? and what um, you would like young people to know, preserve, and remember. I am increasingly interested in things that are less visible, invisibles even, hidden beauty. The natural world, of course, it's full of wonders for our eyes. I love forests. I love to walk in the woods. I love how it smells. I love how it feels under my feet. I love this, the sounds of a forest. I love how the light passes through, how it changes. That's a beautiful experience for me that I often, often seek out. I love the ocean as well. I, I, I love, learn to love mountains. New Orleans is very, very flat. Uh, I didn't see a mountain until I was basically, you know, going to college, but I uh, learned to love those as well. But more than that, I, I look at how things change and and what are the, the forces moving through nature that are providing life, that are exchanging from, you know, plants to people, to other animals, to the rest of the environment? You know, how is it that one mountain will grow one kind of tree while another will grow a different kind of tree? These things are all relatively hidden. There's a great hidden beauty. So it's not for me, beauty is not only what things look like, it's how they function. It's what they are and how they fun function. And I wish that our designs and our architecture and our urban design could be more like that, that people would consider a building beautiful, not simply because it looks nice, but because it's functioning in a beautiful way in terms of our needs for sustainability, needs for anti-waste, needs for providing more for everybody who needs it. So I'm looking more at those invisibles lately. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.